Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas Fort Worth region. Become a member today at DFWworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes and Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen. You know, I'm very fortunate at the World Affairs Council to have the best staff in the world and also a terrific board of directors, but every so often um, it's helpful to be able to just sort of step outside of the box and, and, and go talk to someone who uh, has a great deal of wisdom and can and, and, and give you the benefit of, of his advice. And Mark and I met probably about four years ago, and about once a year we would, he would be nice enough to invite me to, to lunch. And, um, and this year, or in the past years, I would make a list of uh, questions and, and, and go in and talk with Mark. And so some of the things that happen at the council, uh, there's a wizard behind it all, and that wizard happens to be Mark Gottfriedson. Uh, Mark is the founding partner of the Dallas office of, of Bain & Company. And in that capacity, he also serves as Global Head of Performance Improvement Practice. And he's the leader in Bain's business strategy, airline. Uh, ask him about the $15 bag I did a few days ago. <laughs> See what he says. <laughs> Manufacturing and retailing practices. He's uh, been published frequently in the Harvard Business Review and World Business Review. We're here today to hear Mark talk about his new co-authored publication, The Breakthrough Imperative. Uh, how the best managers get outstanding results. Uh, as I always like to remind you, it's on sale today. Uh, it's in my library, and I hope at the end of Mark's talk, it'll be in your library, and of course, he'll be delighted to stay and talk with you after today's breakfast. Please welcome our good friend, Mark Gottfriedson. Thanks, Jim, and, uh, and thanks to all of you for getting up early to come to a breakfast. I know that uh, that's not always the easiest thing to do, and even if you've signed up, to remember to do it is, is not always an easy thing to do. So appreciate you being here, and, uh, and I hope that you'll, you'll find some value in, uh, in my words today. Um, I'm going to give some, some brief remarks. There's a lot more detail in the book, and so I do hope that you will, uh, you'll read the book. My, uh, my partner and I, Steve Schaubert, um, about three years ago, uh, we, in some conversations with other people at the firm, really thought that it made sense. Um, there have been partners at our firm who have uh, who've written books on sort of cutting-edge topics, if you will. But, uh, but Steve and I um, have worked for a very long time with general managers. I've been at Bain & Company for 25 years, and th- over the entire course of that 25 years, my job has been to advise chief executives, division presidents, general managers in general, on how they should, uh, uh, the actions that they should take to be successful in their business. And we really felt like there ought to be something that gets at the fundamentals. What does it take to become a successful general manager? And we think that this book is, of course, of interest to general managers, but it also should be of interest to anybody who has an aspiration to be a general manager because ideally you would want to know what you have to know as a general manager and what you have to do, and, and that would help you prepare. And then finally, if you work for a general manager, you might want to understand some of the, uh, the pressures that that general manager's under and, uh, and the motivations that he's under. One observation that I would make over the, uh, the last 25 years is that the job has gotten tougher. Um, it's, it's a more difficult job today. It's a more complicated job to be a general manager. There's a number of things that are going on. One is the expectations continue to jump higher, and there's many ways that you could measure that. But one way that's kind of interesting is that if you actually look at uh, price-to-earnings ratios, P.E. ratios, over the last 30 years, there's actually been a secular trend up. They've gone from an average of about 12 or 13 to today around 18. There's been peaks and valleys over the years as you've had run-ups in the stock market and so on. But when you run a regression line through that, the expectations have gone up. The actual returns of companies have not gone up which means that people actually have an expectation of any individual company that it's going to do better than it actually is likely to do. The scrutiny today is much more intense. Um, If you think about uh, 
Sarbanes-Oxley and all of the regulations that have come from that and the opportunities that you have to be uh, um, put basically on the defensive based on some reporting requirements or something like that. And, and by the way, Sarbanes-Oxley has now been duplicated to some extent. The regulations have been increased in e virtually every, uh, every country in the world. And finally, the time to execute is shorter, and I'm going to show some data in just a minute, that, uh, that the average tenure of, uh, of general managers has gone down, and you really have to, you have to deliver quick or you perish. Now, on top of that right now, we've got uh, this, uh, you know, nobody has said it's a recession yet, but there's definitely a lot of indicators out there that suggest that we're in a, a tough environment for business. And so you've got all of that uh, working together to make the pressure on a general manager extremely, extremely high. Let me just share a little bit of data with you. If you look from 1999 to 2006, the average tenure of a CEO dropped from about 9.7 years to about 8.3 years. But there's something else going on in the market. You'll notice a big difference between the average and the median. And that's because it's actually quite bimodal. It turns out that if you become a CEO, the, the fact is there's a 40% chance that you'll last less than two years. Fully 40% of all CEOs who come into the position are gone in an average of under two years. If you make it past those two years, then you're probably going to, you know, have a pretty good, uh, pretty good career. And actually, the, uh, the top 20% of CEOs are around for 23 years. It's a little bit like being uh, the head coach of a sports team, right? If you, if you come in and in two seasons later you haven't started winning, you're out. Same thing's true with a CEO. You haven't started showing results in 18 to 24 months, boom. Your board of directors is going to knock you out and say, we need to get somebody who can give us results. So the reason that we wrote the book, really, is to say, how do you, how do you stay out of that bottom 40%? Or if you've had some major changes in your industry, what are the things you have to think about to be successful going forward. And that's the whole point of the book is it's a handbook for general managers. It's what do you have to know and then given that that's what you have to know, what do you have to do with that knowledge to be successful? Business is complicated. If you go to business school you'll end up taking 30 or 40 courses on a wide variety of subjects. You'll, you'll just flit on uh, lots of complicated subjects and so our task we felt was to boil this down into a simple framework that would actually capture most of what's happening in business, but something that you could remember, be a checklist in your mind, you wouldn't be overwhelmed by it, and yet you would be able to be successful. And so we, what we did was we, we've done a whole bunch of research. First of all, Steve has been uh, actually at the firm for a couple of years longer than I. I've been at the firm for 25 years, over 50 years combined experience between us. We first of all, of course, wanted to draw on the experiences that we'd had over the years, and, uh, and there's a lot of rich stories in the book that come out of that. But in addition to that, we went back to uh, the last 3,000 um, client uh, engagements that we had as a company uh, with change management programs, performance improvement. We analyzed what worked, what didn't. We then did a survey of about uh, close to 1,000 companies once we had done that survey, we then did a, a more detailed and, uh, and deep dive survey with about 180 of them. We, uh, we did face-to-face -face interviews with about 40 chief executives and general managers. We also, within Bain & Company, um, we have a database. We, uh, we started building it in 1996, and it was a 10-year database, and now we have 22 years of information where we basically tracked multiple uh, metrics of uh, all of of the top 1,500 uh, publicly traded companies in the world, and we've kind of tracked what's happened with them. In the past, we've done a lot of research on what makes a successful company. Well, we went back and uh, looked at it a different way, which is for those companies that have been successful over time, can we link their success to their general managers, to their CEO and to their division presidents and so on? And is there a correlation between how the CEO behaved and, uh, and the results of the company. And in fact, as you might expect, the chief executive being the leader of the company, they do make a difference. And then in the book, we've, uh, we've highlighted about uh, 100 uh, case studies um, of different companies and their, and their general managers. Not always CEOs, by the way, oftentimes a division president as well. 
um, that, we, uh, that we talk about in the book and the actions that they've taken. Now, we, we then developed a framework. And in our framework, we said that there's four laws of business. And I'll introduce those to you in a second. But we wanted to come up with a framework that was robust. And so we asked the question, take those 100 case examples, take the examples of, of positive companies where a CEO has succeeded. Was he, in fact, following our framework? Was he obeying the four laws of business that we lay out in the book? And the answer was yes, 100% of the time, which is good. But that, so that shows correlation. There was a correlation between our framework and success. But it doesn't necessarily show causation. So we had to look at that a different way. What if somebody got fired? Could we clearly identify that they had violated one of the four laws in the book? And so we went back and we looked at, um, we took a sample of 225 CEOs who left office in 2006. Of that, 38% of them we could clearly identify as being fired, basically. They had been removed for performance-related reasons. You know, the, the wording in a lot of publicly available stuff on why a CEO is leaving and the statements by the board are you know, sometimes fairly circumspect. So you have to dig a little bit to figure out what's really going on. But we could clearly identify that 38% of them were perceived as not performing. They were the ones getting the hook because they hadn't performed. So then we looked at their strategies in detail and said, can we identify that, in fact, they failed to meet one of the, these four laws of business? Now, I'm going to show you these four laws of business, and you're going to say, those are pretty basic. How could 38% of CEOs actually be missing on some of those? Well, the answer is because their job is complicated. They've got a lot of things coming at them, and they end up not focusing on the right things. But 91% of the time, we could clearly identify that they had made an error or had broken one of our four fundamental laws of business. So given that that was the case, we felt like it's actually pretty robust. We, we, we actually feel very, very good about this framework. If you had to pick up one book, if you wanted an NBA in a book, this would be the book to pick up. Now, I'm going to talk mostly about the four laws today. There's two halves to the book. The first half is, what do you have to know as a general manager? And those are the four laws. And the four laws are, first of all, costs and prices always decline. Now, living in a world today where gas prices are going up to $4 a gallon, and commodity prices are going up and all of that. I'm sure you're all saying that is a stupid statement, and I will, I will come back and address that issue. But the truth is, costs and prices do always decline. Second law is that your competitive position dictates your strategic options. In other words, what you can do with your business has a lot to do with your competitive position starting point. Law number three is that customers and profit pools don't stand still. These things change, and you've got to have some mechanisms for following those. And then law number four is simplicity gets results, that every business should be thinking simplify, simplify, simplify. Most organizations naturally grow too complex over time, and it, it causes the organization to lose focus, to mess up the customers, and so on. I'm going to talk, like I said, I'll spend most of my time just talking about those four laws. That's the first half of the book. The second half of the book is, what do you do with that knowledge? Well, the first thing that you need to do as a general manager is you need to do an effective diagnosis of your business. So you need to use those four laws and figure out really where you are starting from. That's your point of departure. If you don't know where you're starting from, and, and believe it or not, this is actually one of the most uh, uh, common mistakes, is that people presume that they know where they're starting from, but they're wrong, that they haven't actually taken the time to effectively diagnose their business. If you don't know where you're starting from, you really can't set a realistic, compelling, and motivating point of arrival. And that's the next step. You need to set, as a new general manager, where do I want to be in three years from now? Specifically, where do I want to be? Again, in the light of the four laws, what's realistic? What will be compelling to the organization? If you set too low of a hurdle, you'll end up underperforming. If you set too high of a hurdle, 
You'll create cynicism in your organization because people will say we just can't accomplish that and it will create negative, uh, negative implications and you won't be able to succeed. But three years from now, where do we want to be? Then the third thing is you've got to map the road from point A to point B. And that's the whole change management process. That's the process of getting the right team in place, getting the right metrics in place, measuring things, getting people the right compensation systems and motivation systems, changing the culture, and so on to get to where you want to go. So the whole change management process is built in there. And I'll just touch lightly on that today. Like I say, there's not enough time to cover all of this. But let me start with costs and prices always decline. When we, uh, when we train our new, uh, new consultants, we, uh, we put together an exercise, which if, if I had more time, I would do it this morning with all of you. But what we do is we break them up into teams of three or four people, and we give them a stack of eight and a half by 11 paper. And uh, we tell them that we've got a, we're going to have a contest, and the contest is to make and fly as many paper airplanes as you can in one minute. And so basically the, uh, the task is it's, it's a successful flight if you can go 10 feet. If the, the plane flies 10 feet, that's a successful flight. And so they get going and they make paper airplanes and start flying them. And, uh, and we stop and we see who flew the most, et cetera, et cetera. And so then we, we tell them, okay, now you can talk about this, what worked, what didn't, and try it again. And so they do it again and uh, with another one-minute trial. And lo and behold, inevitably, the average increase in flights, successful flights for the group as a whole, is 25%. It happens, it's, it's really uncanny. Over 20 years of doing this exercise or something like that, it is always 25% more planes. And then we do a third one. And lo and behold, the average group gets between 16 and 20% more airplanes, the third, the third uh, trial. And so then we graph that up, and it becomes, it's like this. You did this, you know, we, we then calculate a cost per plane. So we, we attach a, uh, a labor cost, and then we say, okay, here's, here was your cost. The next time you got more, and so your cost per plane was lower, and the third time it was lower still, and it forms a curve that kind of looks like this. And that's the learning curve. We all know that as we learn, we get better at doing. It turns out that empirically, human beings learn at a rate, which is that if you double your experience at something, you have the potential to do it in about 25% less time. Now, that works for everything. It works for putting on programs, Jim. You know, if, as you double the number of programs, your cost to put on a program should drop by 25%. It works for your golf game, and so on. That becomes what's known as the experience curve. And this, this curve works in business, and it works inexorably. This is looking at what we call the experience curve for tires. I want to make a couple of comments about this. Remember that I said that the curve looks like this? So it's every doubling, every time you double, you're going to get a 25% improvement. So paper airplanes is, are going to be what we would call a 75% slope every time you double. But of course, it takes longer and longer to double. So the first time it's 25%, the second time it's 16 to 20%, the third time it's going to be 10 or 12%. And so you have a kind of an almost asymptotic curve. If you're talking about wheat or butter, you know, it takes a long time to double the total production of wheat or butter in the world. If you're talking about DVD players or Blu-ray players, it doesn't take so long to double those. And so that's why on high-tech things, you tend to actually see in the marketplace the, uh, the costs coming down in uh, even in non-inflation-adjusted terms. So the first thing you have to do is you have to take out the effect of inflation because inflation can mask for things like butter and, and wheat and things like that. The second thing that's very interesting is that because this works on every time you double your experience, it's an exponential. And so we can put it on a, a logarithmic scale. And on a log-log scale, then for tires, you see the, 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 the costs of tires coming down in actually quite a predictable fashion. 
Now you will see that there are some scallops. Why would there be scallops? Well, supply and demand. There are periods of time where there might be high demand and there hasn't been a new plant built. And so when there's tight capacity, the price will go up. This is precisely what we're experiencing with oil prices at the moment, is that supply has not kept up with demand. But oil has come down in experience curve, and certainly the components of oil, the cost to drill down a foot in the earth, has come down about a 75% experience curve, just as you would expect. In this case, tires have been coming down 72%. You will see some variability around that 25%, but it actually tends to be quite close. Now, there's a very powerful tool here. If you are in 1990 and you're looking at tires and you wanted to know what the prices are going to be in 1995, how would you calculate that? Well, if you have some idea of the volume, in this case it's tire miles, and I'll come back to why tire miles in a minute, you could just extend that line and say in five years from now, prices should be approximately there. You should then be managing your costs in your business in such a way that you can make a profit at that price point. But the presumption is costs are going to con continue to come down. One of the big mistakes, one of the, one of the most common mistakes in business is that a CEO will come in and say, I want to do a relative cost position analysis. I want to see how good my costs are relative to the competition. And so they go out and do a bunch of benchmarking. You hear benchmarking all the time. And they'll find out that they're 10% higher cost than their competition. And so they say, we need a big effort to get out 10% of our costs. And three years later, they've done it. They've gotten out 10% of their costs. Unfortunately, their competitors have continued to come down the experience curve. And guess what? At the end of three years, they're still 10% high cost. They set the wrong target because they don't understand that this is a dynamic environment as opposed to a static environment. As people learn, they get better and costs come down. Now, last point I want to make on the experience curve is why we use accumulated tire miles and why I've got up there cost per mile. Let's, uh, let's think about tires for a second. When steel-belted radials were invented, they came out, and steel-belted radials are actually much more expensive than the old bias-ply radials. It's true today. You can still buy a bias-ply radial in a, in a tire store, and a steel-belted radial is much more expensive. So why would people buy a steel-belted radial as opposed to the bias-ply radial? Durability, more use. That's right. The bias ply will last 40,000 and the steel belted will last 60,000 miles. So really, when the customer is not buying a tire to hang above the fireplace, right? Customer is buying a certain amount of miles on the road. And so the cost per mile is actually the relevant unit of experience. This is another mistake. Even people who understand the experience curve don't understand that you've got got to get the right unit of experience. And the right unit of experience is always as seen through the customer's eyes. How does the customer get value? This concept works, by the way, not just in manufactured kinds of businesses, but it works in service businesses, works in things like software and everything else. Here's just a few examples. Milk bottles, steel, se oh, I missed one there, semiconductors. And then here's an interesting situation. This is looking at the steel industry. Now, what you're looking at here is actual price per cubic meter of steel in constant dollars from 1943 to 1980. And as you can see, with, with the exception of a period, a decade here, where they actually did come down an experience curve for a little while, in general, prices were rising for steel for over 40 years. Now, if I had gone and given this presentation in 1959 to the steel industry and said costs and prices always decline, they would have told me I'm out of my mind. So what's going on here? Why, uh, why didn't prices come down for 40 years in the steel business in North America? Anybody have any ideas? No competition. No competition. That's exactly right. What we had was an oligopoly in the United States of steel manufacturers, and it was completely rational for them to follow each other's prices as opposed to try and price and gain share versus one another because they could actually have 
very good profits. Now, for, therefore, for a very long time, they were able to pass along what became higher and higher costs. As the unions put more and more pressure on them and so on, they, their costs went up, and so they, they raised their prices alongside of it. Now, it turns out that the Japanese, after the Second World War, were very, very high cost in making steel. But the Japanese came down a 75% experience curve on their steel making. And guess what? Their curve crossed the U.S. manufacturer's curve in the mid-1970s. By 1979, the Japanese could land steel in this country um, for cheaper than the Americans could make it. The Americans thought it was dumping. You probably remember all those trade cases, for those of you who are old enough to remember, all those trade cases that were brought. And when the data came in, it was demonstrated that, in fact, the Japanese were lower cost than the Americans that they were not dumping. There was another company called uh, Nuclear Corporation of America that made uh, refined uranium. And uh, in, the, uh, in the early 80s, the uh, uranium business, because nuclear power was becoming unpopular, the uranium business was going to pot, basically. And so they looked at different profit pools and said, you know, we could make money in steel. And so they entered the market, and they became Nucor, of course, one of the most successful business stories in, in American history. Now, let me just say something. If the steel companies, if the U.S. steel companies had come down an experience curve, and I can't make that go down, but if they had come down an experience curve starting in 1944, the Japanese could have never come into this country. And Nucor could have never entered the market. So, yes, they made a bunch of profits for a number of years as an oligopoly. That was short-term gain. In the long term, it killed them all. Now, the, the other question is, could they have kept the prices up but brought their costs down? Yes, but they didn't have that discipline. There are some times when you might want to keep the price up. For example, if you're a pharmaceutical company and you have a drug under patent, do you want to keep the price up for a long time? Yes, because you're under patent. But you should bring your costs down an experience curve so that when the drug comes off patent and the generics come in, you'll still be able to make money. So if you're looking at profit maximization strategies, there are times when you want, might want to hold your prices up temporarily, but you need to understand that at some point that, that, that price umbrella is going to crack and you need to be prepared for that. Okay, moving to the second law. Now, if what I just said is true, that if you gain more and more experience, you have the potential, and by the way, not everybody actually reduces their costs the way they should, but you have the potential to learn and to get better and better, then if you, are, if you have the most volume, if you have the most experience, you should be the lowest cost. So in any given industry, if you have different players, let's say player A is the largest player in the industry, then player A should have the lowest cost position and should be making the most profit given an industry price. And interestingly enough, if you look at at that price line. I've made it slope up a little bit because empirically we have found that leaders actually get about a 1.6% price premium on average across all industries. So the leaders do make more money. And then the, the number two player should have the next position, number three and number four, etc. It's an interesting dynamic because if you are the CEO of company D, who has more influence over your profitability and, by the way, your bonus? you or your biggest competitor, competitor A. Competitor A has the ability to set the price. He can, he can put you out of business by just, uh, by just dropping his price. He'll still be profitable and you'll be underwater. So obviously, if you're, uh, if you're a CEO in, in uh, company D, you need to be thinking real hard about how you're going to survive. Now, how does this actually work? Well, here, this is looking at uh, grocery store chains. If you, if you take this chart here and you say, okay, A, B, C, and D, then what you should expect in any industry is you would expect that as your market share is higher, that your profitability would be higher. And we put that into a graph with a band. And you can see here we have market share along the bottom. This is sales-weighted local relative market share across the bottom, and then margins across the vertical axis. 
And so you would expect that as market share goes up, and you'll see the numbers here, that represents relative market share. And we calculate that in a special way, which is you divide yourself by your biggest competitor. So if you are the second largest, or if you are two times the size of your nearest competitor, you would have a relative market share of 2.0. If you are half the size of the largest competitor, then you'd have a relative market share of 0.5. And we expect to see a relationship about along the line of that band in terms of profitability versus relative market share. Now, the size of the balls in this case here are the size of the company. So here's the next important lesson, which is that you have to measure this in the appropriately defined business. What I mean by that is what is the basis of competition? Kroger is the biggest ball here. They are the biggest grocery store chain in the country, but they are not the most profitable. It also turns out that on a relative market share basis, the basis of competition for grocery stores is not national. It is local. It's city relative market share that matters for grocery store chains. And on average, in the cities where Kroger competes, they're a follower. And therefore, their profitability falls exactly where you would expect it, unless you were trying to draw this based on national market share. So getting the business definition right is another big, uh, big step in this. But let me just give you a flavor. If you get the business definition right, what, uh, what is the correlation? This is looking at uh, 675 companies across all industries where we've actually done the detailed analysis to, uh, to understand the basis of competition. And this is looking at, for different market share positions, what average profitability is measured as return on net operating assets. As you can see, if you are 1.6 times larger than your nearest competitor or above, the returns are very attractive. If you are a small player in your industry, you tend to not make nearly as much money. And it's interesting, if you look at this, the, the guy at the top tends to get a premium, and the guy at the bottom tends to get you know, kicked around the block more often. So it's kind of a flat curve, except on the tails when it, uh, when it, when it rises and falls. Another way to look at this, this is looking at the range of returns amongst companies. And a good way to think about this is if you think of the green and the light green as exceeding your cost of capital. Exceeding your cost of capital means you actually make a return greater than the interest required and what your stockholders expect. So you exceed the returns that people expect of you. If you're a strong leader, the probability of exceeding the expectations is 80% for the reasons that I just have talked about. If you are a distant follower, you have about a 65% chance of not meeting expectations. Now, what I think is interesting about this chart is not that there's a correlation, because there is a correlation. What's interesting about this chart is that actually distant followers do exceed expectations 35% of the time. Now, that's the interesting territory, because 80% of chief executives do not find themselves to be the chief executive of a leading company. And so what do you do if you're in that other 80%? Well, there's a lot of different strategies. And again, I don't have the time to discuss all of those today, but if you take that band chart and you, and you did the diagnosis of your business, you would find yourself either in the band or above the band or below the band. And depending on where you fall on that band determines what your real strategic options are. So if you're a leader, what you want to do is you want to keep investing in your brands. You want to overinvest in R&D, try and drive the competition out, and so on. But if you are a follower, or you're an underperforming follower in particular, you've got to figure out, first of all, how to get your costs down. Second of all, you've got to segment your marketplace. You've got to find some segments of the customer base that are not being met properly by the largest competitor. You've got to be very creative and innovative. And you have a number of strategies that you can take to try and overcome what is a pretty heavy weight of gravity. Now, Bain Capital is a company that, uh, that was formed outside of uh, a Bain & Company. And every year, 
they, uh, they give an investor presentation. They've been a very successful private equity firm. They have been in the top quartile of returns for private equity for 24 years now. When they put up their strategy, they have a very simple strategy that they put up. They put up this band chart, and then they have a circle located right about where number four is there, and they say, this is our strategy. We buy companies in the number four position. In other words, they buy underperforming leaders. They like to buy a leader in their industry that is not getting the, the profits that they should have. Because they're usually, they probably haven't managed to the experience curve appropriately, so there's the potential for reducing their costs significantly, or they haven't served the customers in the way that they should. But the point is, when, they, when you buy a leader who's underperforming, gravity is working in your favor. A little bit of effort goes a long way and gets a big return, and that's, that's the whole strategy of, uh, of Bain Capital and what's made them successful over the years. The third life, if, only, if there were only the first two laws, business would be quite deterministic, and there wouldn't be, it wouldn't actually be that, that interesting. Because if you're the biggest, you're the biggest, and you're going to be the biggest forever. But there is something interesting in business, and that is that customers and profit pools really don't stand still. Starting here on the left, we all know that our likes and dislikes change over time. The things that are in fashion change. We get sick of certain retail stores, and we want a new concept. We want a new concept in restaurants, clothing, and so on and so forth. So changes in spending patterns, customer preferences can change profit pools. Um, things like uh, um, gas prices going up can dramatically change the profit pools in the car industry, for example. Second is, uh, is innovations in or out of your industry. So as the experience curve comes down, it's not always completely smooth. People will have an innovation which causes a step change for a number of years. As you sort of run that regression over time, it's still going to show the experience curve, but sometimes it comes in big, big leaps. And so somebody may, be, may come up with an innovation. It might be in your industry. It might be somebody who comes up with something that's going to substitute, and I'll give an example of that in a minute. Third, changes in the business environment. China's decision as a government to open their markets and to trade with the rest of the world has had an enormous um, impact on just about every industry. Thirdly, or fourthly, there is the, uh, the sort of the Michael Porter balance of power types of things, the forces, the, the bargaining power of customers and suppliers that can impact that. If, you're, if your suppliers suddenly consolidate, they now have potentially more negotiating power with you, and that might um, impact your ability to make profits. Let me give you an example of this. This was the, uh, the photographic industry profit pool in 1995. Let me, uh, let me just describe this chart for you. What you've got at the bottom, the width of the bar represents the total revenue of, of each step in the value chain. The height of the bar represents the percent operating profit. So the, the, the area in each of those blocks represents the, uh, the total profit for that, uh, for that business. And so you can see where the relative profitability is. Notice very little money made in film retailing but lots of money made in film manufacturing. And on the retail side, they were selling the film so they could actually get the photo finishing on the other end because there was a big profit pool in photo finishing. Okay, what happened to the photographic industry profit pool, would you guess, between 1995 and 2005? What's that? It collapsed. Why? What happened? Digital. It went to digital. Okay, you'll notice that there was $2.4 billion of total profit in the photo industry during that time. Um, here's what happened over the, the next 10 years. Okay, here's the profit pool in 2005 in black. Um, the, what's the biggest block? It's actually memory manufacturing. What is memory? It's the film of the digital age, right? I want you to notice something else. The total profit pool is now $3.7 billion. So it actually grew. The profit pool actually grew. And all the money's still made in the, the film of today. Now, if you were a company in 1995 in the photographic industry, 
what should you have done? And how could you have known what you should have done? Is it possible to forecast those things at all? In fact, the entire photographic industry did know that digital was coming. The problem is that they focused on, uh, let's see here, on, on the, basically the camera manufacturing, you know, digital compact manufacturing. That's where they tended to focus. What we recommend that you do is that every year you track the profit pools in your industry because you start to see the migrations. The biggest player, the dominant player in memory manufacturing is a, is a company called SanDisk. In 1995, they were a startup. If I were running a photographic company and I got to thinking about the profit pools in film, what is going to be the film in digital, I think I would have gone out and bought SanDisk when they were a small company and I would have built them up. And I actually think that my brand name could have made them, if anything, even more successful. So those are the kinds of things that you have to be thinking about. You've got to watch those profit pools. You need to be asking, can I take some of the profit pools in this industry? Where should I be investing? And where is it going to go over the next few years? Okay, last law. Simplicity gets results. Um, in the book, we talk about uh, product complexity, organizational complexity, process complexity, and strategic complexity. All are important. I'm only going to touch on product complexity here in this conversation because it's a, it's a great example, but, but the lessons you learn here are the same for all of the others as well. We did a very simple thing. We looked at 110 companies in 17 industries, and we covered all kinds of industries. So we had business-to-business, business-to-consumer, high-tech, low-tech, financial services, manufactured products, fast food, you name it. And we did a very simple thing. We just went to their websites or their catalogs or whatever, and we looked at and added up how many products they offered, how many unique products they offered, how many stock-keeping units for a fast food chain, how many items are on the menu. And then we put it all into a regression and we said, how does this work? Is there a correlation between growth and profitability and how many products you offer as a company? Again, looking at it within your industry as opposed to across industries. And what we found was something that is actually pretty counterintuitive for most people. And that is that in every industry, the lowest complexity competitor grew the fastest and was the most profitable. Now, when people look at this data, they say, yes, but in every industry, there is some little upstart that has an innovative product that is growing very rapidly, and that's going to skew your results. In fact, there was no correlation with size, not even a negative correlation with size. Absolutely none. And in many cases, the simplest competitor was also the largest and most, uh, uh, most profitable. And a great example of that is Toyota in the auto industry, where they offer in the neighborhood of two to 3,000 unique ways that you can buy any model as compared to hundreds of thousands of ways for any American manufacturer, a difference that's been around for a long time. Now, Complexity creeps into organizations in a completely and totally natural way, which is that as you're trying to run your business, you say, we want to meet our customers' needs better. And so you have product developers, engineers, marketing people all thinking about how can we get one more sale? What, how can we tweak the product in some way to get a little bit more sales? Because what you're saying is, I want to give the customer whatever he wants. And if I give him what he wants, he'll be happy. And that way... And if he's happy, I'll get higher market share and profitability. But let me, let me just share with you an example of, of how this, this happens. Think of a windscreen, a windshield for, uh, for an automobile. And let's say that you decide that you'd maybe like to offer that as a clear windscreen or a tinted windscreen. And so you go out and you do market research, and you find out that 30% of your customers would buy a tinted windscreen option for $120 if it was offered. So you go back to your supplier and you say, how much would it cost to tint the windscreen? And they say, $8. We'd charge you $8 more for a tinted windscreen. And you say, wow, that looks pretty good. 30% of the customers will pay $120. It only costs us 8 bucks. 
And well, okay, we've got an extra part number, so there's going to be a little bit of inventory. But it doesn't take any more time to put the tinted one on versus the clear one. Well, okay, maybe a few minutes because now the operator's going to have to read a track sheet and determine whether it's the tinted windscreen or the clear windscreen. But let's say it costs an extra dollar between the inventory and the extra time of that guy um, reading a, a track sheet. So it costs an extra dollar to, to, to choose one or the other. Sounds pretty good, though. $120 of revenue minus $9 of cost, $111 of additional profit for every windscreen you sell. As a, uh, as a manager, you'll make the decision to add that windscreen every single time. However, what you don't recognize is that when you do that along with 13 exterior colors, 10 interior colors, seven different radio and speaker combinations, power door locks, power windows, power steering, power brakes, and so on and so forth, and all of those are options, manual and automatic transmissions, paint stripes, etc. All of a sudden, you get to a point, you really don't know which car is going to have a tinted windscreen or not. You, you really can't balance your lines anymore, and so you start creating inefficiency in the manufacturing operation. Your forecasting doesn't work, and you can't really tell your suppliers how many tinted versus clear we're going to do today. So to try and manage that, you order up a $50 million SAP scheduling module and another $50 million forecasting module, and your suppliers don't believe your forecasts anymore, so they start doing their own forecasts. They create and build up inventories, and so they have to charge you more. And so underneath all of this, these costs are building up. And you don't really recognize, you can't tie it to that one decision of the windscreen. So what you really end up with is, it's, it actually becomes very hard to identify the best sellers. You know, if, you've, if you can make a, uh, a car in 10 billion different ways, and the average dealer carries seven, what's the chance that the seven on the lot, are gonna, one of those seven is going to be the right one for you when you walk on the lot? It isn't high. Uh, just to give you a flavor for this, we worked with a, uh, a printer manufacturer that makes laser jet printers. They weren't that complex. They only had 500 different printers that they made. But the average store carries five. We convinced Walmart to allow us to go in and merchandise their stores. Walmart's sales of that brand of printer rose 30%. Why? Because we reduced the complexity, and then we looked at the demographics for an individual Walmart store and said, for these demographics, which is the printer they really want? When we had the right printer in stock, the sales went skyrocketing up. So when you have high complexity, it's hard to identify what are the best sellers. Go to any bank's website, by the way, and just look at you know most banks' websites I would describe as this. Hey, we're a full-service bank. We have a lot of products. Just look at them all. Good luck finding one for you. You know, you've got to hunt and search. As opposed to, say, a Dell computer, Dell's had some of their issues, although they're, they're making some progress getting it back, but one thing they manage well is complexity. Dell manages through their website to give you a consultative sale. When you go to Dell's website, they ask you, are you a small business, medium business, large business, government, or education buyer? So immediately, they segment you. Then, the next one is, do you want a laptop or a desktop? Boom, you make the choice, and now they give you three choices. A low-end model, a mid-end model, and a high-end model. And, uh, and, and then if you, you can actually customize it. You can change it. But if you change it, it's quite expensive to change because they understand what it costs them for you to make that change. So you make two changes on the midsize, and you find that it's as much as the high-end model, and you can get more by just buying the high-end model. And so they've now funneled you and 80% of all of their orders are one of the three that, uh, that, that, are actually, that they offer you. So they actually help you choose your computer. There aren't many banks who do that, but they should be doing that. Anyway, you get all these problems, so you end up with exactly the opposite um, implications of what you thought that you were going to get. One of the people that I, I worked with, one of the general managers, was a, a man named Hal Spurlick. He was, uh, he was president of Chrysler Corporation under uh, Lee Iacocca, and uh, a brilliant man. He, he was actually the, the person who was the product developer of the Mustang. And he understood this idea of complexity quite well. And, and he had a, a phrase that he called the killer ABCs. 
He says you have to get the killer ABCs right. And what he meant by that was he had learned by doing market research that when you ask a customer after they've purchased a car um, why they bought the car versus some other car, nobody could give more than three reasons. And his point was if you can meet those three things, if you can find those three things and then meet them, you've got a winner. And the classic example was the Mustang. This was the original ad for the Mustang. And as Hal Spurlick describes it, it is a picture of a sports car that looks like it's moving even while it's standing still. A beautiful and sophisticated woman and an affordable price. Three things, and that's why you buy the car. It's sporty, it gets you a sophisticated woman, and you can afford it, by the way. That's all you need to know. And that was, by the way, that's the most, uh, uh, most successful sports car introduction in the history of the world. Here's another example. This is a grocery store chain. This is a grocery store chain many of you will know because it's located in, uh, in South Texas. They were leaders in their markets, and they came to us and, uh, and said, we'd like a strategy because Walmart's coming into our market with super centers. These guys actually had a dominant share position in their market. They owned about 65% of their markets. But Walmart was coming in. Walmart is known to be good for logistics and so on. And so we worked on that strategy for them. And one of the first questions we asked was, we wanted to go ask customers, what makes a great grocery store? And the test of that was, what would make a grocery store so good that you would drive past the one closest to you, the most convenient grocery, because convenience is very important in grocery, what would make you drive past the most convenient one to go to another one? What would make a grocery store that good? And the customers told us it's two things, if they have a great produce department and if they have a great meat department. And so we said, terrific. Let's, let's grow those departments and make them better. So we asked the customers, what makes a great produce department, for example? And the customers said, well, there's really two things, freshness and variety. We want freshness and variety. So we said, let's, uh, let's change some of the rules for when we turn the product over so it always looks fresh. And since the customer wants variety, let's remove 25% of the variety. Now, that was controversial. Customers said they wanted variety, and we said we're going to take 25% out. Well, we did, it, we did the calculations on what the costs of complexity were, and, uh, and we discovered that they were pretty high. And so we, uh, we, uh, we, we had a, at least a business case for taking the complexity out. Sales and marketing was absolutely adamant that that was the stupidest idea in the world. But we were able to convince the CEO for three pilot stores. And so in those pilot stores, you know, we, we, we redid the produce department. We made it so that the, we had these freshness algorithms. And, uh, and we took out 25% of their stock-keeping units. After three months, the new concept had worked very well. These stores had seen significant increases in same-store sales. Customer satisfaction was up. And then we went and asked the customers, now tell us your perceptions of the variety. 80% said there's no, no change. 15% said there's actually more than before. And 5% said, 5% recognized the truth. Now, we all know that, you know, there's an adage in business which says don't try and fool your customers. But in this case, we fooled 95% of them really well. What's going on here? How could we possibly, when customers want variety, we take out 25% of the variety and fool 95% of the customers? How do we do it? Okay, we reduce the noise. Any other thoughts? So the, the freshness is probably more important than the variety. Freshness is important. Well, let me ask you a question. When a customer says that he wants variety, what does he mean, do you think? He wants just his, what he wants. Customer comes in with a, with a shopping list. What he wants is everything on his shopping list to be there. I want what I want when I want it. That's what variety is to me. What had actually been happening is that things had been, you know, the, the Madagascar tamarinds had been crowding out the chopped salad variety that the customer wanted. And so the customer was coming in, and there was, they were stocking out of the things which were actually most important to the customer and had tons of the stuff that didn't matter. 
which, by the way, impacted the, the view of freshness as well. So getting the right number was the right thing to do. All right, two quick stories and I'll end. Here's a, an example of uh, a CEO, Gary DiCamillo. He, uh, he was, the, uh, he was a, a great CEO, and uh, he was kind enough to talk to us about, uh, about his situation at Polaroid. But he had been the number two guy at Black & Decker, and uh, a, a very well-thought-of uh, CEO coming in. He had introduced the DeWalt brand. Uh, he was the guy behind the DeWalt brand of Power Tools, one of the most successful consumer products um, introductions ever. But he came into Polaroid, and, uh, and the traditional wisdom says that you know, Polaroid missed the digital revolution. They went bankrupt, as you know. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. When, uh, when Gary D. Camillo came in, uh, the same year that he came in, Polaroid came out with a camera called the PDC-2000. It was a professional-level digital camera. It was the best in the industry. It cost several thousand dollars. And Gary D. Camillo said, what we've got to do is we've got to take this great technology we've got and we've got to turn it into a consumer product. And so he said, we need to develop a 3-megapixel camera that can be sold for $800. He put behind that for three years a crack team of engineers and his whole team behind it sort of set up a man-on-the-moon project. And at the end of three years, lo and behold, they had succeeded. They, they came out with a 3-megapixel camera that they could make money at for $800. Unfortunately, the competition was selling 3-megapixel cameras for $400. So Gary DiCamillo had done something which is astounding. He had brought the costs down. He had done a great job, but he had missed understanding what experience curve he was actually on, that he had moved on to an electronics experience curve. Polaroid had a culture of doing everything themselves. When they made their previous cameras, they, had made, they made the film, they made the camera, they made the batteries for the camera and everything else, and they did the same thing for the digital camera. They designed their own chips. They designed the software for those chips. They actually built the camera. They actually ground the lenses, and so on and so forth. They should have been outsourcing to other players that were better a lot of those components. Instead, they tried to do it all themselves, and the net result was they didn't understand where they needed to be on the experience curve. Second example. Warren Knowlton, on the other hand, came into a company that seemed to have no promise. The, uh, the company had very high labor costs, pension liability problems, 200 different businesses. Um, Morgan Crucible, the company that he came into, had made the ceramic crucibles that go inside a, uh, a vessel for melting metals. A very old line company, but, uh, but there, was, there was actually an analyst report that came out questioning why Warren Knowlton was even willing to take the job because they described Morrison Morgan Crucible as a dinosaur which has no reason for existence. Three years later, the stock price had increased ten times. The margins were up, growth was up, and so on. What did Warren Knowlton do? Well, what he did was he actually used the four laws, and he went in and did a diagnostic of each of the 200 businesses. In fact, from the four laws, he developed a list of 30 questions, and he had each of the managers of his businesses come back. And then he looked at them and figured out what the point of departure was, what the new point of arrival should be. And let me just give you a couple of examples. There was a, a business which, had, uh, which made brushes for, uh, for electric motors. He looked at that, and they were a distant follower in making brushes. He said, you know, we can bring our costs down to where we should be on the experience curve. It will still be very high cost versus the leader. This business is worth more to the leader than it is to us. Let's sell it to him. And so he's able to sell that business. On the other hand, he had all these ceramics businesses, each of which had their own R&D. And he said, you know, we're not focused on our, in our R&D. And so he consolidated into a single ceramics R&D center. And he brought all the projects in, and then they arrayed them against what they believed were the customer needs and eliminated about 80% of all of the R&D projects and focused on the ones that had the most promise. Put all of their resources in there and the result was a number of new high-tech ceramics which have done extremely well in the marketplace. That and a number of other actions has been very successful for him. But a very systematic approach. So what we've done now is we've taken the four laws and we have applied then three critical questions that you need to be able to answer under each of those four laws which become what we call 
the 12 must-have facts. And we believe that you can diagnose, effectively diagnose any business based on those 12 must-have facts to understand what your point of departure is. You can then, within that context, set a realistic point of arrival for three years out. What you're going to want to do then is you do the, uh, the diagnostic using the 12 must-have facts. You then set a point of arrival, sets a vision plus the goals and the metrics, and then for each of the four areas, you're going to have two to three metrics that you're going to be measuring. Once you have your point of arrival set in place, then you're going to set a road to results, and that's going to have action imperatives and initiatives. There, we believe that you can't have more than three to five. When, uh, when Greg Brenneman and Gordon Bethune set the, uh, the turnaround plan at Continental Airlines, they had four pillars. You could go to any baggage handler at Continental Airlines, and they could tell you what those four pillars were and how their job fit into those four pillars. Those will, of course, cascade down into detailed action plans for every single person in the organization. And then you've got to manage the process. And again, as I mentioned, I'm not going to have time to really talk about this, but we, we um, have broken it down into, uh, into four major categories, plan, lead, operate, and track, or the plot method that we have for, uh, for getting to results. So let me stop there. That's it. I've already taken too long and too much of your time. Um, but, uh, but let me stop there and, and say thank you very much. No, thank you very much, Mark. You made a statement that the leader had a 1.6 price advantage. What, 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 what does that mean? Yes. On, on average, um, a leader is able to get a 1.6% price premium. Right. Um, it, it's going to vary by industry. You know, consumer products industries, it's going to be even more than that. But the reason is that a leader has, because they have more profitability, they have more money that they can invest in their brand, in the potential quality of their product, uh, in the reputation that they've got, and so on. And that leads to some pricing power in the marketplace. I was interested in your, uh, your analysis of experience and how you do forecasting with experience. Uh, in my business, um, as we try to get really granular about evaluating our experience, we find ourselves struggling between proficiency and experience and the difference between the two. Because in, in my business, flying airplanes and, and operating airplanes, uh, it was very difficult uh, to quantify the difference between someone who is experienced or someone who is proficient because there were different measuring requirements for the metrics there. Yeah, that's, that's actually a good point. Um, you know, some, some have felt that there may be a trade-off there. In fact, typically, um, in, in, the, in the learning process, you get both improved quality and reduced costs. So as you become more experienced, you become actually better at the task as well. And so we have not typically seen that to be um, a trade-off per se. There's an example that we use in the book, which is polyester filaments. And, you know, it's interesting, polyester filaments, you can measure them on tensile strength and a number of other quality measures. And at the same time that the cost of a, a filament is coming down, the quality measures uh, are actually going up. And so, um, you know, the specific example I can't, uh, I can't speak to, but my guess is that if you thought about it, they should be hand in glove. Um, working, uh, working together. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah I'll use your golf analogy. Uh, I may be a very experienced golfer, but if I don't golf often, I'm not as proficient. I may be very experienced because I know this golf course well, or I know which club to use, but my ability to actually perform the task goes down if I don't practice it. Yeah, that's at, well, yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah, there is. It, yeah, if you, but but the point that you're making there is that you actually lose some of the benefit of your experience if you uh, if you don't keep performing it over time. We talked earlier about oil prices. Okay. Um, oil prices are actually pretty interesting, and and there, there, you know, if you look at oil historically, and you take out inflation, in fact, oil has come down a. Um, um, an experience curve, and there have been big peaks, right? 1973, 1979, and 80, and then now. Um, we've seen some, uh, some giant peaks. All have been impacted by various things. In today's world, we are impacted by, I think, 
three things which are affecting the supply and demand equation. One is, uh, is of course, nobody really foresaw the growth of the China and India economies and the, the use of energy. In fact, if you look at uh, sort of capacity and investment and you see what was happening, when you sort of track that back 20 years, and you, you see there's actually a close match, and the curve of demand, the demand curve actually tips up significantly, but the, the, uh, the investment curve can't catch up as quickly as the demand curve um, picked up. And so that's by far the, uh, the biggest factor. The second factor that has been a huge issue here is the national oil companies or, the, or governments taking over and nationalizing their oil businesses. The impact of that has been a reduction in technology. In other words, the national oil companies don't have the technology that the international oil companies have. So you take somebody like Venezuela or even Russia who have done a great deal of, of uh, nationalization. It's not that they have a shortage of oil in their countries to pump more. They don't have the technology to do it. And so their production has actually come down. And so we've been, uh, we've been faced with that. And that's something that's still ongoing. And the production, Iran's another great, another great example. They've got plenty of oil. They don't have the technology to get it out of the ground. And so their production has been going down, even as the demand for, uh, for world oil has been, has been going up. And, uh, and then, of course, I think the, uh, the third thing that is going on is just the uh, OPEC has seen that they actually now, because of the scarcity, they have pricing power, and they've been refusing to actually increase their uh, their. Uh, uh, their, their production. Interestingly enough, I believe that over time that the incentives to actually cheat will come back for OPEC. They'll get used to their current levels of income. They'll want to grow that, and so there will be, uh, be incentives to, uh, to get more production out, and the market will ride itself. There is not a shortage of oil in the world today, although I will make a comment. In, there, in the appendix of the book, we do talk about what happens with a, with a true depleting natural resource. And basically, the short answer is the prices will rise to the point where you get on the experience curve of a substitute. And then, and then you'll be back on, on the experience curve again. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm hand. We appreciate it. Thank you. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.